For some, there's not much more fun than going to a park. However, the definition of fun varies from person to person. This week, we discuss the chessboard killer, Alexander Pachushkin. Let's open the serial killer file. There's no question that an accident can leave a child damaged for the rest of their lives. Alexander Petrushkin was born in Matuchi, Russia on April 9, 1974. He was a healthy and normal child until he suffered an accident while riding a swing at a local park. Just as he was swinging, he fell back, hitting the back of his head. Trying to hold on to the swing, he managed to slam the front of his head onto the pavement, resulting in damage to his frontal cortex. Following the accident, he began to act impulsive and fall into fits of rage. Due to his developmental and behavioral issues, his mother transferred him into a developmental school for children with special needs. Alexander was humiliated by this and it only made things much, much worse. Schoolmates from his previous school began to verbally and physically abuse him whenever they had a viable opportunity. He was beat and called derogatory names for going into a special needs school. This only formed aggression inside of him. Once making his way into adolescence, Alexander's grandfather insisted that his schooling was failing him. He recognized how intelligent Alexander was and felt his talents were wasting away. Since he wasn't involved in any activities, his grandfather began taking him to bits of park to play chess. The hobby showed his true skills and he became highly competitive in the game. For once, he found a way to channel his inner aggression and turn to a game of chess for a chance at dominating others. Despite his newfound love for chess, students and children still didn't hesitate to bully him, no matter what he did. Things would never be the same for Alexander once his grandfather passed away. Having lost a father figure who truly saw his potential and understood his emotional pain, he began to heavily partake in drinking, numbing the sadness and anger that was settled deep inside of him. The great loss of his grandfather flipped a switch inside Alexander. Following his life into alcoholism, he took out his dark emotions on elderly homeless citizens near him. He would interact with the homeless and gain their short-lived trust by offering them a bottle of vodka. Once drinking with the man or woman, he would lure them into bits of park, smash the bottle, and then ram the sharp broken end of the bottle into his victim's skull, killing them in a slow and excruciating method. The beginning of his killings were speculated to occur in 1992 and only progressed as time went on. For 14 years, he would go on to kill over 60 innocent people. Aside from luring homeless, he would go out of his way to act social with people he met on the street. Once gaining the trust of the man, woman, or child, he would walk them to secluded areas of the park and at the right moment would violently beat his victim in the head with a hammer he carried in his bag. Other methods included luring victims and tossing them into sewers located in the park. Russian police did have the opportunity to stop this senseless killer, however, foolishly, they did not. In February 2002, Maria Viracheva was questioned by police after she was admitted to the hospital for unusual injuries she encountered while lost in a sewer. The pregnant woman met Alexander on the street and the two struck up a conversation. Financially unstable and soon to be an expecting mother, he insisted he would help her. He stated that he had hidden electronics inside bits apart. If she wanted some extra cash, she could sell what he was offering her for free. Lured deep into the park, he pointed at a manhole and told her to look inside the hole to see his hidden gadgets. As she did, he began pushing her head and body inside the manhole. Panicking, she could no longer endure his strength and fell eight meters into the darkness of the sewer. Frightened, 
Maria was determined to escape for the sake of her unborn child. Hours of endurance led her to find an iron ladder, which led her to the surface of another manhole entrance. Once talking to police, they dismissed her case and went on without investigating the man who attempted to kill her. With luck, Alexander continued going about his murderous lifestyle. Though he managed to possess an impossible amount of luck in 2006, his luck took a swift turn. In the spring of 2006, police uncovered the body of 36-year-old Marina Moskalyova, a mother who was supposed to go on a date with the serial killer. Police reached a break in the hunt to catch him when they discovered a Metro ticket in the pocket of the body. Video surveillance from the Metro subway showed Marina's final hours as she was making her way to Bitsa Park with her unsuspected killer who was carrying his murder weapon during the commute. The son of the victim had received a note from his mother which stated where she was going, who she was with, and Alexander's telephone number in case of emergency. This led police directly to the serial killer. Alexander was arrested on June 16, 2006 and was convicted of 49 murders and three attempted murders on October 24, 2007. As police searched his home, they discovered a chessboard with multiple squares written on, symbolizing the age of each victim he had murdered. Prior to his trial, he was escorted to Bitsa Park where he displayed the whereabouts of more than 40 of the bodies and giving police detailed descriptions of how each were killed. His precise memory helped aid police in discovering missing persons during the case. During his trial, he was kept behind a glass cage for his protection from family members in the courtroom. Alexander was sentenced to life in prison with the first 15 years to be spent in solitary confinement. Alexander's ruthless nature and lack of remorse has renewed an interest in Russia's death penalty. At the age of 41, he continues to serve his time in solitary confinement for his actions. A serial killer so charming, he made it onto a dating game show. This week, we discuss the dating game killer, Rodney Alcala. Let's open the serial killer file. Rodney James Alcala was born August 23, 1943, in San Antonio, Texas. Originally named Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bacher at birth, Rodney grew up in an unstable household. His father, Raul, abandoned the family, leaving his mother to support Rodney and his sisters. The permanent separation from his father left young Rodney with abandonment issues. Being the only male in the family brought on traumatic emotional distress that would eventually mold his aggressive and sadistic characteristics into adulthood. Eventually, his single mother yearned for a new life, and they all packed up and left for Los Angeles in 1955. At the age of 17, Rodney enrolled himself into the United States Army, where he served a position as a clerk. He would apply himself and serve until 1964 after he experienced what appeared to be a severe nervous breakdown. Once thoroughly evaluated, military psychiatrists diagnosed Rodney with antisocial personality disorder, a mental condition in which a person has a long-term pattern of manipulating, exploiting, or violating the rights of others. Due to his incompetency to properly serve with other members, Rodney was permitted to be medically discharged from his base that same year. Following the discharge, Rodney was accepted into UCLA School of Fine Arts and was able to graduate in 1968. Rodney considered himself to be a genius. His IQ hovered somewhere around 160, and he was a supreme narcissist. 
On September 25th, 1968, Rodney was driving when he spotted eight-year-old Tally Shapiro walking unaccompanied along a street sidewalk. Rodney pulled to the side and lured Tally into the vehicle by assuring her that he was not a stranger, but a family friend. A nearby motorist spotted the suspicious event and followed Rodney back to his apartment, immediately notifying LAPD of the kidnapping. It was nearly too late by the time police arrived at Rodney's apartment. When officers forced their way into the home, blood was found throughout the hallway leading onto the kitchen floor. It was on the kitchen floor where they discovered the eight-year-old girl struggling to stay alive. Rodney had raped and attempted to murder the child with a 10-pound steel bar, but failed to complete the murder on time. Paramedics managed to save Tally's life, thankfully. However, police were unable to catch Rodney after he fled the apartment complex through a back door. Investigators were able to identify Rodney as their main suspect after locating his UCLA student ID card in his bedroom with a notable collection of photographed women he had taken pictures of. Though Tally managed to survive, the Shapiro family were destroyed distraught from their daughter's traumatic experience. As soon as she recovered in the hospital, the family left the United States and moved down to Mexico for protection. It was now the 1970s, a new time and a new chance for Rodney to become a new person. Slipping through the hands of law enforcement, Rodney fled to New York, where he took up the alias of John Berger. He went on to attend film school in NYU, where he became a student of well-known film director Roman Polanski. Rodney hid his inner demons from the public eye and was considered to be a harmless guy with good looks and a great attitude. His attempted murder placed Rodney under the FBI's most wanted list, causing many to be on the lookout for the rapist and kidnapper in many areas of the states. It would take police three years to apprehend Rodney after two girls at a children's art camp recognized him from wanted posters. While Rodney worked as a camp counselor, he altered his alias to John Berger in hopes of hiding from police. Rodney was arrested and taken back to Los Angeles in August of 1971. Justice was in sight for the Shapiro family, however, luck seemed to be on Rodney's side. The Shapiro family refused to have their daughter testify in court during the trial. Since the family relocated to Mexico and there had been no other primary witnesses during the attack, prosecutors could not charge Rodney with rape and attempted murder. Rodney settled with a plea deal and was forced to plead guilty for a smaller charge of child molestation. All previous charges were dropped and Rodney was sentenced to one year to life and was paroled after 34 months under the indeterminate sentencing program. It only took two months for Rodney to resurface after he was arrested for providing marijuana to a 13-year-old girl known as Julie J. Despite being a danger to society and having an alarming criminal record, Rodney managed to become a typesetter for the LA Times in 1977. Rodney had also made his way into the company during the national coverage of the Hillside Strangler murders. Rodney also considered himself a professional photographer, one who specialized in photographs of women and children. Mainly approaching women, Rodney would introduce himself as a freelance fashion photographer that needed images for projects. Dozens of vulnerable women and children he deemed harmless would fall into his trap. Many of these victims would follow Rodney for supposed photo shoots. Each person who agreed to have their pictures taken would unexpectedly fall off the face of the earth leaving friends and family confused and concerned. Rodney would gain popularity on television when he was featured on ABC's hit show, The Dating Game, in 1978. Out of all three contestants, Rodney was able to win over a date with Bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw. However, Cheryl rejected Rodney backstage after stating that Rodney was too creepy. She could sense something was off about him. 
Missing persons reports continued to be filed all around Los Angeles. The 1970s were a peak time for Rodney. Rodney was back in police custody after one of his victims, Monique H., a 15-year-old girl, managed to escape the rape and beating she endured in 1979. Fortunately for Rodney, his mother was able to free him of his kidnapping and rape charges by paying his $10,000 bail. Luck wasn't in the hands of the next victim, however. On June 20th, 1979, Rodney approached 12-year-old Robin Samso and her best friend, Bridget Wilbert, at Huntington Beach in hopes of luring his next victim. A neighbor had noticed Rodney Rodney with both girls and immediately went over and asked if everything was okay, purposely hinting to Rodney that he was being monitored. In seconds, Rodney ran off with his camera, attempting to conceal his identity. Shaken by the incident, Robin used Bridget's bike to get back home in time for her ballet class. The view of Robin pedaling back home was the last sight that Bridget saw of her friend after Robin's body was found 12 days later in a remote location over 40 miles away from where she was last seen. With the help of Bridget, police were able to mock up a composite sketch that was broadcasted across Southern California leading to his arrest on July 24th. Police were able to uncover a storage locker rented by Rodney in Seattle, Washington, which linked him to the murder. The locker was full of Rodney's keepsakes. Included in his pile of photos were Robin's earrings that she had last worn the day she was at the beach. Rodney was sentenced to death for her murder. However, the jurors were improperly informed of his previous sex crimes, causing a second trial to occur in 1986. Rodney was once again convicted and sentenced to death, but it had been overturned by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Prior to his third trial in 2003, Orange County investigators were able to match Rodney's DNA to the rape and murder of two Los Angeles women. The locker belonging to Rodney was a treasure to investigators after they were able to locate earrings belonging to both women. Additional evidence in their investigation tied Rodney to not two, but four women. The 1977 murders of 18-year-old Jill Barkham and 27-year-old Georgia Wixted, as well as the 1979 murders of 33-year-old legal secretary Charlotte Lamb and 21-year-old Jill Parento. Police were able to reopen the cold cases of the four previous murders, realizing that each of the women followed the same pattern of rape and strangulation. Investigators were unable to determine whether or not Robin Samso was raped due to the fact that she was merely a set of discarded bones that had already been eaten by wildlife once discovered. Because of this new evidence, Rodney's third and final trial was pushed to February of 2010. During his trial, Rodney was so confident in his intelligence that he decided to represent himself legally, something that is never suggested. For five hours, Rodney played the roles of a witness and interrogator, asking himself questions in different voices and speaking in third person. For his closing argument, he played the song Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie, in which the protagonist in the song tells a psychiatrist that he was to kill. In less than two days, Rodney was convicted on all five counts of first-degree murder. During the 2010 trial, Tally Shapiro attended Rodney's sentencing. It came as a surprise, and while in Tally's presence, Rodney apologized to her, saying, I sincerely regret and apologize for my despicable actions that day. Tally was not moved by his words and later went on to say, I have trust and commitment issues. He apologized because he got caught. The fact that this guy is still alive is amazing. 
On March 30th, 2010, Rodney was sentenced to death for a third time. In 2013, he received an additional sentence of 25 years to life after pleading guilty to two homicides in New York in 1971 and 1977. After the announcement of Rodney's sentence, police released over 120 images taken from Rodney's storage locker of unidentified women. Approximately 900 additional photos could not be released to the public due to their sexually graphic nature. Huntington Beach and police in New York have released the 120 images in hopes of identifying people in the images. A few weeks in the investigation, approximately 21 women came forward to identify themselves. Around six families came to the police and stated that they recognized loved ones in the photos. Sadly, the women or children in Rodney's release photos have been missing and have never been located, suggesting that Rodney has murdered far more than people know. Rodney Alcala is currently 72 years old and is awaiting execution while incarcerated at San Quentin State Prison in California. To this day, police in California and New York continue to reach out to the public to solve some of the mysteries surrounding the 120 photos that are easily viewable online. The Orange County District Attorney's Office and Huntington Beach Police Department are asking for the public's help in identifying women and children featured in over 1,000 photographs found in the Seattle storage locker of serial killer Rodney James Alcala in 1979. Anyone with information regarding the identities of the women and children in these photographs are asked to contact Sergeant Smith or Detective Ellis at 714 536 5947 with the Huntington Beach Police Department or Supervising District Attorney Investigator Ed Barakovich at 714-347-8492. Please see the description below for a link to view these images. That's all in this file. Video games may seem harmless enough, but you really should keep a firm anchor in reality before you play, because video games in the wrong hands are just as deadly as, well, anything else. Tyrone Spellman was a man who took his video games very seriously. It seemed like any other day when Tyrone woke up on September 7th, 2006 and wasted a little time before hopping onto the couch and firing up his Xbox 360. He began playing Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon and was killing enemies left and right, but these weren't the only lives he'd claim that day. Tyrone was home with his girlfriend, Mia Terman, who was still asleep in the bedroom, and their daughter, Aaliyah, who was only 17 months old and was learning to explore and experience anything she could get her tiny hands on. Unfortunately, one of these things was the power cord of Tyrone's Xbox, Giving it a tug, the console unplugged and tipped, crashing onto the floor. Tyrone was shocked, believing that his daughter had broken his $600 gaming console. But shock turned rapidly into rage, and with all inhibitions out the window, Tyrone snapped, rushed over to his daughter, and began punching her in the face and head. He punched the girl so hard that a piece of her skull had broken off. 
He then grabbed her and threw her into a chair. Tyrone attempted to cover up what he had done by claiming Aaliyah had fallen and hit her head, but investigations determined the real truth, and Tyrone eventually confessed. Tyrone was charged with third-degree murder and sentenced to 22 and a half to 45 years in prison. Sadly, this could have easily been avoided as an autopsy showed that Aaliyah had sustained a broken arm two weeks prior to her death under questionable circumstances, but despite two social workers coming to check on Aaliyah's welfare, no one seemed to notice. Paying monthly to access online games is never fun. You can either go into your wallet and pony up the dough, or you can just not play. Or you could do what this next person did. In 2007, a 13-year-old boy named Don from Vietnam was especially desperate to engage in his long, fun-fueled online gaming sessions, but those pesky monthly fees pushed him to new lengths as he quickly found himself without any money to fund his gaming habits. He knew he needed a quick and simple way to make some money, so he did something not many 13-year-olds do. He decided to rob an elderly woman for the money. There wasn't much detail on how Don initiated the horrendous act, but what is known is that Don confronted an 81-year-old woman. He came equipped with a length of rope, and in order to keep the woman from protesting his actions, he decided to strangle her to death with the rope. He then stole the equivalent to a little over six American dollars from her and buried her body in a pile of sand in front of his house. Eventually, Don was found out and arrested, and he confessed to police his motives for killing the woman. While he was too young to go to prison, he was sent to a re-education camp, which was likely to release him as long as he practiced good enough behavior. It's unknown if he has already been released back into the public. Farmville, one of those games people either obsessively love or absolutely hate. Alexandra Tobias was a 22-year-old mother who was one of the obsessed players of Farmville, who was more than likely wanted dead for the numerous invites she sent her friends on a regular basis, but Alexandra wasn't the victim. In January of 2010, Alexandra was logged into Facebook and clicking away at Farmville, doing her best to ignore her three-month-old son, Dylan. The thing about babies, however, is that they tend to cry when they're ignored for too long. In fact, they cry over just about anything, and this was something that Alexandra found as an immense annoyance, as it kept mentally pulling her out of her immersive Farmville experience. After some time of Dylan loudly crying, Alexandra had had enough with the interruptions. She swiftly grabbed Dylan and shook him hard before stopping, because she either realized she was a terrible mother, or simply because her arms were getting tired. She went outside, smoked a cigarette, composed herself, walked back inside to play more Farmville, but instead decided to shake Dylan violently again. Dylan suffered brain damage and died as a result. Alexandra claimed that Dylan might have struck his head on something while he was being shaken, which could have contributed to his death. Alexandra pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. Grand Theft Auto was a series of games that admittedly makes crime quite a lot of fun, and for that reason, a lot of parents hate it. 
The parents of two American teenagers, William and Joshua Buckner, probably hate it more than most anyone else. It was 2003, and Will, aged 16, and Josh, aged 14, like so many other gamers, loved Grand Theft Auto. But these two seemed entirely unable to discern virtually killing people in the streets with actually killing people in the streets. The brothers wanted to replicate their gaming experience in real life as they were so impressed with the fun they had playing the game itself. On June 25th of 2003, Will and Josh traveled to Interstate 40 in Tennessee and brought along a 22 caliber rifle. Once there, they began freely shooting at people driving by. This resulted in several people sustaining serious injuries. One 45-year-old man named Aaron Hamill was struck in the side of the head while driving back from a trip with his cousin, which resulted in the car being sent off the road and into a guardrail. His cousin became frantic after seeing the wound in the side of Aaron's head, she quickly reassured him that she was okay and that she loved him and would make sure all of his pets were well taken care of. Aaron died shortly after. The two brothers were each charged with reckless homicide, aggravated assault, and reckless endangerment and pled guilty to the charges. The two boys were remorseful of their actions, and Aaron's family filed a lawsuit against the game's publisher. Will and Josh were both sent to a juvenile detention center, but have both since been released when they reached 19 years of age, as Tennessee law prohibits juveniles from being kept in custody after that point. There's no doubt about it, playing online games with people can be absolutely enraging, but the fact that we are separated from each other keeps us from doing stupid things. But that separation was only temporary for a Ukrainian player of Lineage 2. Alexander Ponomarenko was one of the most hardcore players of the game, a game which involves forming guilds or clans in a medieval world. It's no surprise that guilds hold a certain level of hatred for one another, and Alexander hated his rivals perhaps more than any other. 20 to 30 Lineage 2 players met up in a cafe in Moscow in January of 2007. It was there that Alexander saw his arch-nemesis in real life, a man only known as Kirill. The two immediately got into a confrontation and took what was going to be a brutal fight outside of the cafe. While the two fought, one of Kirill's friends rushed out in an attempt to calm Alexander down. Alexander suddenly wailed the man in the face, sending him to the ground. He then promptly lifted his foot and stomped it down on the man's head, resulting in considerable brain damage, which later claimed the man's life. It is believed that Alexander received a mere 15 years in prison for the murder. That's all for now. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. 
Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.